Hi there, I'm Washington Post reporter Lillian Cunningham. Stay tuned after the show to hear about my latest podcast, Moonrise. It's the dark but true story of why we went to the moon and what we found there. The full series is available now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, October 25th. Today, the dangerous journey for refugees fleeing Syria for a new life. And a Republican plan to get an unlikely group to start voting. It's a little bit after midnight. We've just turned off the main highway in order to avoid a checkpoint. So we're on a gravelly back road, which adds another half hour or so to our trip. But the passengers... There's a network of Syrian drivers that's been operating for much of Syria's civil war. And the network has sort of sprung up to serve the very large population of Syrian refugees who live in Turkey. I am Karim Fahim. I'm the Istanbul bureau chief at The Post. Earlier this year, Karim and his colleagues spent weeks riding along with this underground network of drivers who take Syrian refugees deeper into Turkey. But in the, in the course of doing that reporting, we were also spending time at what are called passenger houses. And these are these apartments or safe houses that the drivers go to to pick up newly arrived refugees. And that's where I met Farah and Bishr. Farah and Bashir are from outside of Damascus. Like so many other Syrians, they fled their home in search of a better life. But refugees are facing growing hostility in neighboring countries, including in Turkey, where there are about 4 million displaced Syrians. And for people like Fada and Bashir, the journey is getting much more difficult and dangerous. So we listened to them and, and spoke to some more people in the safe house, and we were trying to figure out where we would go next, which driver we would follow, which group of refugees we would follow. And we decided to follow the two of them. So at what point did you meet this couple? So at the beginning of their journey, in, still in Syria, they, they had already spoken to a smuggler who, who I think sort of laid out their general route. And this route is sort of well-worn now over the eight years of Syria's civil war. You get to the border areas, and once you get to the border areas, you get transported to some intermediate point, and then... From that place in central Turkey, you head to the coast. So there's not sort of wiggle room in that. And so when I met them, they had reached the sort of intermediate point in central Turkey. They had already been able to get past the border areas, which are some of the most difficult. They just had to get from the central Turkish city in Konya to Izmir. And it was, and it's pretty much a straight shot. So we're about halfway between Konya and Izmir. I'm in a car with a married, young married couple. So you decided to spend some time with them and to ride along with them. 
What was that like? So I had taken a few of these rides before. So I was used to it, but Farah and Bishr were unused to it. She especially was on edge for for most of the trip. We had a, a driver who played sort of old Arabic classics that were, you know, very soothing and put at least one of the other passengers to sleep. We went from uh, the city of Konya in central Turkey to Izmir, which is on the coast and is, you know, one of the hubs for refugees who are taking the boats to Greece. That's where their smuggler had directed them to a, you know, sort of coastal launching area where they would, where they would catch a boat. And when you guys finally got there, what was it like for them? And did they seem relieved to have arrived or did they, did it just sort of add more nervousness to get to the next stage of their journey? I mean, initially, they seemed very relieved. We ended up in this sort of district where there are lots of these flea bag hotels. And um, this is where a lot of the refugees end up staying before they, before they get on the boats. And, you know, there was a little bit of tension as we went around to different hotels and they were having trouble finding a room. But then, you know, we finally found one. We spoke to them a little bit in the lobby before they went to bed and they did seem much more relaxed. Do you think you would uh, do you think you would go back to Syria? No. No, I don't want to. Why? No, not going back. No chance to live in there. I can't raise my children in there. Why? It's too hard. Bad schools, bad hospitals, bad war, war. This word is enough. So how are you keeping up with them after you left this port city? So after we left them in Izmir, we kept in touch on WhatsApp, basically. Hi, how are you? We're good. So we're still in a hotel waiting to move on. I'm sick. I'm sick. Two days, three days, I don't know. And so I would I would send a message and often Farah would would send back a voice memo and this went on for a couple of weeks. We're good, still waiting. In the hotel. How are you? You haven't spoken to me for a while. We lost touch with them for a couple of days. And then when we did finally hear from them again, we were told that they had been arrested soon after they got on their first boat, sort of immediately um, as they got into the water. to Bodrum uh, in midnight, maybe 1 a.m. Uh, we didn't wait in there. <laughs> we get in the boat. You, you say it. Oh, they catch us. You know, at that point, 
they probably could have stayed in Turkey. They would have had to stay in that city, but they didn't choose that. And they immediately headed back to the coast. Farah sent me another message saying, I'll try again. <laughs> Four days until I get back to do it again. <laughs> that must have been so frustrating for them, the fact that they made this whole journey to get to that city. They were waiting there for such a long time. And then as soon as they make some progress, that they kind of have to start over with that stage of, of their journey. Yeah, exactly. And clearly they were frustrated, but she didn't at that point sound defeated at all. You know, the next time we heard from them, they told us that they had been able to get on another boat, but that the boats had sunk. We had seen news reports about um, a, a boat carrying refugees that had gone down in the Aegean. Twelve refugees had drowned when, oh when the gosh. boat sank. But she and her husband were okay? She and Bishr were okay. They had been sort of in a position on the boats that allowed them to sort of quickly jump in the water. But several refugees they knew and had traveled with had lost family members in the sinking. One of them was a, a young man named Ahmed, and he had been in this cabin below deck. At one point, for some reason, the smugglers had locked the, the door to the cabin to prevent refugees from running around the boat and, I guess, capsizing it. And, uh, you know, in one of these videos that emerged from the Turkish news services after the sinking. You can see Farah and Bishr being rescued. You can also hear uh, a man screaming the name Ahmed. And that was his brother, um, we later learned from Farah. It was shocking, you know, because, you know, obviously we've, we've been following sort of every step of, of this journey and had heard about so many other people crossing sort of without incident. Um, I think, you know, at some point we just expected that that's how it would go for them. Hi, Kenny. Yes, I can see you. When you come, we're going to talk. I will describe everything. You know, after the boat sank, they were held by the police again for a long time, for almost a month. And they were being held as witnesses because the authorities were trying to arrest they the smugglers. Every smuggler said to his group, you're only 15, you're only 11, you're only... All of us in the same boat. It's so small. I don't know how I get in that boat. I don't know. I don't know why. I'm looking at so small. We are 50. So many people. It's so crowded. But you know, fast, hurry up, hurry up, they're screaming, you have to move so fast. But do you think these other smugglers yes. know that you told about the other smuggler? Like, I don't know. Okay. I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe they... I don't care. They deserve. When they were finally released, you know, of course, they went straight back and tried to cross again. They were successful, and I got a message. 
Hi, Karim. How are you? I'm Farah. I just want to tell you, I tried the, the third time. Now I'm in Lagos. <laughs> I'm so happy. Yesterday I arrived. How are you? Are you okay? When we last checked in with them, they were in Athens, um, but planning to move again as soon as possible. And for Farah and Bashir, what is their plan for where they want to end up? You know, I, I, I just saw them recently in, in Greece again, and I tried to sort of pin them down on this question of what the plan was. Does it feel, uh, does it feel better to be here than it did to be in Leros? So much. No compare. And, you know, she's 26, he's 31. That's partly going on. They want to travel, you want to travel. Why does everyone want to leave here? To have a better life. So if you had your choice of anywhere you could go, where would it be? Anywhere. Right now, I don't care. I just want to... You know, Farah said, you know, we're just looking for stability. Whatever that means. But where they should end up seems to be sort of the the last question they're asking. It's just, how do we get from here to the next spot safely and together? Karim Fahim is the Istanbul bureau chief for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. The Republican Party's plan to win over a group that's not big on voting. There was a farm stand that I stopped at where I asked a woman, how do you think Trump is doing? Which is a question I've asked in churches all over the country for years. And she was the first person who's ever said to me, "Uh, who's Trump? He's the president, right? My name is Julie Zosmer. I'm a religion reporter. Amish PAC might sound like it's a political action committee run by Amish people, but it's not. Nobody involved is Amish, though one of the co-founders was raised Amish. It is a Republican PAC that is trying to cater to Amish voters and trying to get Amish and conservative Mennonite voters, which is another religious group that lives in the same areas in Pennsylvania, trying to get these conservative religious folks to register and to come out and vote in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, where their votes could make a lot of a difference. When Amish people vote, they tend to vote for Republicans, but they typically don't vote. It's not common at all in Amish communities. When you go around and you talk to people who are Amish or Mennonite, they say, no, I've never voted. Nobody in my family's ever voted. For most people, they don't have a religious objection per se to voting, but it just seems a little too close to the sort of involvement that they don't do. And they really like the government staying away from them also. They get waivers so they don't participate in Social Security, which is pretty unusual. They pull their children out of school after eighth grade. They're really trying to stay to themselves and not have the government 
messing with their way of life, which, you know, voting brings you that much closer. You start worrying, oh, if I vote, are they going to want me to participate in Social Security? Are they going to want me to be part of something that I don't want to be part of? Amish Pack is trying to make the case that President Trump lines up well with Amish values. Not all Amish people would agree with this, obviously. But they say he's a business person who runs a business with his children, just like many Amish people. He doesn't drink like Amish people. These are all things that Amish Pack is trying to convince Amish people they have in common. This pack got going in 2016, so this is their second presidential election cycle. In 2016, they had billboards, they had advertisements in newspapers that Amish people read. They went out on election day and knocked on every single Amish door they knew about and tried to offer rides to the polls so people would come and vote. Um, Amish people will generally ride in cars but not drive them, so offering a ride is a pretty big deal. And all of that added up, they got almost as many Amish people to vote in 2016 as voted in 2004, which was the peak election for the Amish. They're big fans of George Bush. He and his father are the only two sitting presidents who've ever visited Amish country while they were president. So the Bushes are very, very popular in Amish country. And to come close to that height, that is an achievement. They think they can do better in 2020. We'll see. Republicans don't have nearly as much practice as Democrats at get-out-the-vote efforts. Typically, it is Democrats who really want everyone to go to the polls. To have found a lower voting community that will vote Republican is a little bit rare for them, and this is sort of an experiment. Julie Zosmer is a religion reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to catch up on all the Post's audio coverage of the congressional investigation into President Trump, you can check out our new Impeachment Inquiry podcast. It features updates from all our political shows. Can You Do That?, The Daily 202's Big Idea, and Post Reports, updated as news happens. Subscribe today at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hi, I'm Lillian Cunningham, host of The Washington Post's Presidential and Constitutional Podcasts. We've just released the finale for my latest series called Moonrise. It reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, 
closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, and even the history of science fiction to tell a new story about space. Listen on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. You can binge the entire series available now.